Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today I really wanted to bring our listeners an authentic and genuine experience, Kristen. Okay. I am coming into this topic of insomnia completely sleep deprived. Oh no. I I do suffer bouts of crazy insomnia. Nothing like chronic, nothing long term, nothing health issue related. It's more anxiety. I tend to suffer from anxiety on and off and it causes these spirals of sleeplessness because whatever makes me anxious whether it's work or personal stuff, I suddenly lose the ability to sleep and then the more tired I get, the more panicked I get that next night about sleeping. And a vicious cycle of insomnia is created. Well, Caroline, I, uh, you're really a, a method podcaster. <laughs> do what I, I do what I can. Just immersing yourself in the topic. And I'm sure that there are so many listeners who can relate to that very cycle of insomnia that you experience. Well, I would assume there are a lot of listeners out there who could relate to it because insomnia is something that I feel like a lot of people, it's a health issue that a lot of people talk about, a lot of people experience. Certainly here in the U.S., a lot of people do. And there's a lot of money that people pour into curing their insomnia. Yeah, just to get a sense of how bad of a time We have sleeping specifically in the U.S. If you look at what the so-called sleep economy was worth in 2007, as reported on in the New York Times, we spend $20 billion a year on sleep aids of different sources. And sleep deprivation was also estimated to cost U.S. businesses $150 billion annually in lost productivity. I believe it. Like when you come to work sleep deprived, and I don't mean you like you, Kristen Conger, like when Kristen Conger comes to work sleep deprived, but when the general you comes to work sleep deprived and me specifically <laughs> and, and, and me, let's be honest. I mean, it is so easy, for instance, I don't know, to like find yourself staring out the window and realize you've just been sitting there for 10 minutes not doing anything. Yeah, because your brain is just shutting down. Um, and the thing is, there are actually 88 known sleep disorders and insomnia, even though we're probably all familiar with what it is in general. It's one of the least understood, scientifically speaking, like doctors still aren't entirely sure what causes insomnia. We know what yeah. it does. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you when you look at the causes and effects of insomnia and the fact that there are underlying health conditions, but it's sort of, it gets into a chicken and the egg thing. Like, okay, well, insomnia can cause things like depression and anxiety, but it's also caused by depression and anxiety, and it leads to some some awful things during your day that you have to deal with. Yeah, and the big reason why we're talking about insomnia on the podcast is because it overwhelmingly affects more women than men. Mm-hmm. So first, why don't we just talk about insomnia in general, which is a sleep disorder characterized by difficulty falling and or staying asleep. Yeah, and some other symptoms include just being sleepy during the day, feeling tired when you wake up, that feeling like you're never refreshed, irritability, problems with concentration and memory, tension, headaches, and of course, mine, which is like ongoing worries about sleep, like will I 
Will I ever be able to sleep again? Well, would you characterize your insomnia then as the acute insomnia or chronic insomnia? Well, I would say that bout that I had a couple months ago, I would say that was definitely acute because it's short term and versus chronic, which is at least three nights a week for a month or longer. Um, it was awful and it was constant and then it was, and then it was just gone. It, it fixed itself over Memorial Day weekend. Thank goodness. And that insomnia that I was suffering from, that acute insomnia, I'm pretty sure was primary insomnia versus secondary. So primary is like just regular old run of the mill, can't sleep because you're feeling crazy versus secondary, which is actually sleep problems caused by a health condition. So it's like if insomnia comes into your bedroom just on its own, like, hey, it's just <laughs> if it's, it's just Kool-Aid man, it is a Kool-Aid man of insomnia of sleep disorders. Then that's primary. But if it's. Say, you know, uh, you know, uh, say depression walks into your bedroom is like, hey, also, I brought along uh, <laughs> this really cool friend of mine, insomnia. Yeah. Have exactly. fun with both of us. And it's secondary. Yeah. Oh, man, what a great medical doctor I would make. <laughs> well, and speaking of secondary insomnia, depression, as I just mentioned, is often linked to it. Uh, also, things like anxiety and stress. And according to a recent study that came out from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, it's not just the stress itself. It's also how we react to stress, which can exacerbate insomnia. Yeah, if you're not dealing with your stress, and I'm sure a lot of people out there are familiar with this. I'm certainly familiar with this. If you're not dealing with your stress and you're using poor uh, coping mechanisms to try to work around it, like turning to alcohol instead of stress reduction techniques. <laughs> We're all guilty of a glass of Pinot Grigio now and again. And that can actually contribute to your stress-induced insomnia. And there are also a number of medical conditions such as uh, issues with chronic pain, breathing difficulties, or needing to urinate frequently that can provoke insomnia because, you know, you're having to, you know, it's waking you up constantly during the night. Yeah. And then, of course, there are things like poor sleep habits, certain medications and things like caffeine, which is an obvious one, nicotine and also alcohol. And, you know, I I think that this is common knowledge, but it's worth repeating that a lot of people do kind of turn to alcohol to wind down at the end of the day. But anyone who has ever gone to bed after having a little too much to drink might be familiar with the phenomenon of waking up suddenly and being like, oh, well, the alcohol wore off and now I'm not sleeping well at all. Yeah. Or you might sleep through the night, but it's not restful sleep. It's yeah. just drunk sleep. And yeah, then which is not good. I guess. But that's something completely different from insomnia. <laughs> but it can contribute. What can also contribute in relation to alcohol, speaking of alcohol, is your good old handy dandy period. It's so handy and yes. dandy. Both. So during your period, your progesterone, your hormone progesterone is highest around ovulation and during your luteal or post ovulation phase. And this hormonal cocktail can actually exacerbate the effects of alcohol. But we have so much more period stuff to talk about later. Yeah, because spoiler alert, when it comes to women and our issues with insomnia, Menstruation often is the culprit. Yay, hormones. I just picture like a giant crowd of hormones all waving like pennants. They're like at a football game. Like, yay, we're not going to let you sleep. So now that we've established all the myriad ways that we can be robbed of our sleep, the next question is, well, what does insomnia do to you? And it's no big surprise that it's a host of 
not so fun things like lower job or school performance, slow reaction times while driving, higher risks of accidents probably due to that slower reaction time while driving. It might also, in a bit of a cycle, kick off issues like depression or anxiety, which then might contribute to more insomnia. Yeah, it is. It's all insomnia is part of just a terrible cycle of awful things, because, I mean, the more you get it, the worse things get. Things like uh, high blood pressure, it aggravates weight gain and obesity, heart disease, all this terrible stuff. But at work, you know, Kristen mentioned it contributes to lower job and school performance, as one would expect if you're like totally tired and not firing on all cylinders. There was a study in 2006 from the Journal of Management, very straightforward name of a journal, that talked about the effects of insomnia on people at work. And yes, you know, as you would imagine, it's associated with increased feelings of hostility and fatigue and decreased feelings of joviality and attentiveness. But that that is actually worse. These effects are actually worse for women. Yeah, that finding in the study that women's attitudes at work were affected more by insomnia is stood out because there are also some studies that say that women actually handle sleep deprivation better than men, at least yeah. based on uh, our performance on like computer related tasks after not getting mm-hmm. enough sleep. But I guess that's a little bit different because that's looking at can you punch keys on a keyboard versus <laughs> can you talk to your manager in the break room and not and not start crying and yelling. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, no. And that that study, too, that you just mentioned also was showing that like women seem to suffer more from insomnia and also believe that they're suffering from more from insomnia, but that they after like two good solid nights of sleep recover better than men do. Oh, and on top of that, too, women who are performing lots of housework, which is often the case because women perform a majority of the housework, it slows down that recovery period. If you're doing all this housework, then you have less time to rest and Mm -hmm. hopefully recover from that lost sleep. And this issue of insomnia among women really shouldn't be ignored. And and this is um, something that more and more medical research is starting to highlight because insomnia might be signaling other kinds of medical or psychiatric problems in lady sleepers. Right. Yeah, because women are about twice as likely as men to suffer from major depression during their lives. And it's nearly always accompanied by difficulty sleeping. And also another big health issue is obstructive sleep apnea. This is something that my mother struggles with. She snores, has sleep apnea, and it really messes up your sleep because you basically wake up gasping for air. Um, but uh, obstructive sleep apnea is a major cause of insomnia, as you might imagine. And it's a major contributor to heart disease. And before menopause, women are about half as likely to have sleep apnea as men are. But once they get past menopause, they catch up to men. Those lucky ladies. Yeah. And after menopause, too, as we'll talk about more, the rates of insomnia among women escalate as well. Right. Well, what's dangerous about this whole sleep apnea, depression, insomnia link is that because doctors are kind of programmed to use not the best term, but kind of programmed to think that it happens more frequently in men than in women, they might overlook the signs of sleep apnea in women. And so, oh, you're just depressed. You're just tired. 
But really, she has possibly a serious health issue going on. I'm programmed to say this. <laughs> I'm a doctor robot. Dr. Kristen. Yes, Kristen robot. Um, well, now that we've talked about a lot of sort of external factors that interact with insomnia and promote cycles of insomnia in women, let's really focus in now on sleep and how that interacts with gender, because there are a, a lot of different gendered patterns, it turns out, of how we rest. And we'll talk more about that when we get right back from a quick break. So to first kick off th- this closer look at gender and sleep, I just want to toss out this historical tidbit from Insomnia, A Cultural History by Elenid Summers Bremner, uh, who talks about how in the 19th century, uh, there was at least one doctor who claimed that women need more sleep because we're prone to nervous excitability, while another doctor in the 19th century thought of insomnia as a morbid deficiency of the brain, which was why women need more sleep. Mm -hmm. There has for a long time been a lot of focus on women and sleeping, but, uh, you know, just not for such fantastic Reasons, right? In the past, there there was also this guy named S. Weir Mitchell, um, who in the late 19th century uh, developed what he called this rest cure for women's hysteria, and essentially he would lock up women in a room and just force them to do like absolutely nothing whatsoever to try to just, I guess, break them down and cause them <laughs> to be less hysterical. Yeah, look, you're expressing your opinion way too much. We need you to go in this room and just rest. Yeah, I know. And rest cure sounds so nice. I would love to take a rest cure at the beach. But oh, wait, no, no, no. Not that kind of a rest cure. Because you might still be talking and expressing opinions at the beach. We can't have that happening. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so let's look at let's look at the gendered breakdown of sleep. Who sleeps more? Who needs it more? Do women just complain or do we actually have something to complain about? Turns out that women spend 15 more minutes in bed than men do, but we sleep 11 minutes less. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to napping, guys, at least according to research from the Pew Center, you take more naps. Uh, 38% of men reported napping versus 31% of women. So not a major difference there. But when it comes to who needs more sleep... Doctors say women be needing some sleep because of our hysterical uteruses. No, Caroline. Oh, okay. no. Uh, it's actually, at least according to Professor Jim Horn, who's director of the Sleep Research Center at Lowborough University in England. It has to do with our tendency to multitask. Mm, yeah, women do multitask more than men do. That's on any blog you'll find out there that'll tell you that. But apparently women need 20 minutes extra deep sleep in order to rest our cortex. The cortex during the night needs you to sleep so that it can disengage from all of your crazy senses and go into recovery mode. And the more you use your brain during the day, the more your cortex needs sleep. Although I wonder, and this is a bit of a side note, if perhaps another solution is to multitask less, because research also finds that multitasking is not exactly 
better tasking. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I know. Well, it's hard to resist multitasking, though, sometimes, Caroline. Well, sure. Unless like and I'm good at it to an extent. I'm good at multitasking to an extent. But then my like undiagnosed adult ADD kicks in and I'll just I'll start something over here and then I'll move over here and do something else. And then by then my cortex is just like, we don't even know what's going on. Go to sleep. <laughs> and then you just <laughs> and then I just face plant on your cubicle. Yeah, so if you ever walk by me and I'm just like face down in the cubicle with the space bar going forever, just leave me. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to wake you up, Caroline, because According to research out of Duke University, women are grumpier when it comes to losing sleep. They actually use the words hostile and angry, specifically in the morning. And anecdotally, uh, I've gotten better at being a morning person, but it took years of training. I know that in high school, when my mother would wake me up, it would there would be like an hour long window before I was even approachable. Yeah. No, I, I totally get it. I am n- not a nice person when I'm like super tired and I've just woken up, especially if I haven't slept well. I have been known to throw the covers back and yell, I'm not sleeping and, you know, go storm out and try to sleep on the couch. Yeah, I'm not social. For the first bit of the morning, but no. I think I'm not as <laughs> not as hostile and angry <laughs> as I used to be. Um, but we might not just be just old grumpy gusses for no good reason, because according to these same Duke University researchers, women actually suffer more mentally and physically if we don't get enough sleep, which then puts us at a higher risk for heart disease, depression, and psychological disorders. And also, podcasters referring to you as a grumpy Gus, apparently. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's scary. And, and you're like, well, I mean, surely like there's nothing so bad about this. But in addition to all of these things that it, insomnia puts us at risk for, we as women end up with higher inflammation markers. And basically, this indicates to a doctor that you are developing health problems, and they're linked to pain. So, well-established, women need more sleep. Even though we might be laying in the bed more, we aren't necessarily getting it. What is going on? Because statistically, women are 50% likelier to suffer from insomnia. And according to a survey from the National Sleep Foundation that came out in 2007, single working women have it worse, which I was surprised to see because I would have assumed it would have been working moms. I would have thought so, too. But it turns out that single working women are probably we're probably bringing it on ourselves. Oh, because we're like staying out late, doing our thing. Yeah, exactly. And we're singing about it. We're just constantly throwing our hats up in the air like Mary Tyler Moore, just like going in overdrive. Um, married working moms get about the same amount of not enough sleep as single working women do. And, you know, stay at home moms, you guys don't have it much better. Three quarters of these women experience symptoms of insomnia. And why is that? Because we all have a lovely cocktail of hormones in our bodies that are really the primary culprit of all of this insomnia. It seemed like of all of the studies that we read regarding gender differences and sleep patterns and insomnia from adolescence 
through old age, mm-hmm. it is constantly menstruation, menopause, pregnancy, and hormones that are the common thread. Yeah, that's right. Amy Wolfson, who's the author of The Woman's Book of Sleep, a complete resource guide, said that more than 70% of women complain about sleep problems during menstruation when hormone levels are at their lowest. So imagine that stadium full of pennant-waving hormones just, like, clearing out of the stadium, and suddenly you can't sleep. Yeah, um, if you're listening to this and you're like, huh, you know what? I, I seem to not be able to sleep when I'm experiencing PMS. Well... Probably because premenstrual insomnia and premenstrual hypersomnia are just two of the menstrual related sleep disorders that are among those 88 known sleep disorders. So there is a very strong link between our menstrual cycles and how well we sleep. Yeah, in fact, research even says that menstruating women report bloating that is significant enough to disturb their sleep at least two or three days during each menstrual cycle. And I am interested in hearing from people who may have experienced this because, while I do certainly bloat every month. I mean, that's no big deal. I've never actually experienced it so badly that it's interfered with my sleep. So what's happening on a hormonal level is that during the luteal phase, which is after ovulation, our levels of progesterone rises and actually chills out our sleep patterns a little bit. Progesterone is more strongly related with good sleep. So hooray, progesterone. But then a few days before your period starts, when both progesterone and estrogen levels drop, you have a spike in insomnia. And then during the follicular phase, which is menstruation to ovulation, you have energy supplementing estrogen building up until ovulation, which is also when you see levels in insomnia rise. So we have like a Mm. brief window during our menstrual cycles. What is that? Right after ovulation, when progesterone's like, hey, friend, (laughs) here are a few nights of rest. Progesterone comes along sprinkling fairy dust on your eyes. And then estrogen busts into the bedroom is like, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, so so does birth control? I mean, do, do different types of birth control then affect insomnia? We did not look into that, Caroline. But I just wonder. I mean, I wonder. It must. It must. I, I feel like, and this could be mental, this could be a total coincidence, but when I switched from the pill to an IUD, I feel like I experience more intense insomnia. I'm on a hormonal IUD, so I, I don't know. Maybe some, Maybe someone out there can tell us. I would only imagine that if you are on some kind of hormonal birth control, that it must influence your sleep because progesterone and estrogen are so commonly linked to it. Yeah. Well, so, but speaking of not being on birth control during pregnancy, especially in women's third trimester and after childbirth, women experience these profound fluctuations in their steroid related hormones and those hormones that are involved in the whole hypothalamic pituitary adrenal grouping of hormones that produce significant uh, physiological changes. Yeah. And and apparently during the third trimester, Not only are you having some hormonal fluctuations that contribute to insomnia, but it's also the fact that your belly is so large and you have to go to the bathroom Mm -hmm. more often. That will again wake you up. Yeah. So that sounds more like like a secondary insomnia that Mm -hmm. it's caused by 
not a not a health problem, but a, a body issue. A thing. baby. It's caused by a growing baby. Oh, that's what it is. All right. Well, so once you've crested that hill and you're coasting into menopause, of course, your sleep is also going to be disrupted then, because why wouldn't it be? Because menopausal women experience wonderful things like hot flashes and night sweats. And this is during this time you get things like a diminished production of estrogen and particularly progesterone that affects your sleep. Yeah, it in fact does not get better when it comes to insomnia as we age. Right. And like we mentioned earlier with the uh, sleep apnea stuff, menopause is when women really catch up to men in terms of experiencing that really bad health issue that doc, you should definitely go to a doctor and get checked out. But yeah, so you're experiencing night sweats and hot flashes and you probably are developing sleep apnea. And I mean, man, your body is just throwing you for a loop. Thanks a lot, body. <laughs> and well, and speaking of a time when your body kind of throws you for a loop, uh, if you're wondering when this gender gap in insomnia really starts to widen, it is during puberty. Uh, this is from a study in pediatrics that came out in 2006, looking at gender differences in insomnia among adolescents. And it found that when girls started getting their periods, they became two and a half times likelier than boys to have insomnia. So yet again, we have hormones and specifically progesterone, estrogen, etc., being strongly related to our sleep or lack thereof. Yeah, so leading up to puberty, there's really no huge significant gap between boys and girls in terms of having insomnia, but... That onset of a girl's period is associated with a 2.75 fold increased risk for insomnia. Now, one other gender gap that also emerges during puberty that we've talked about before on the podcast is how among girls rates of depression and anxiety also increase. So one thing that these researchers looked at was whether or not it was puberty related onset of depression that might have been fostering cycles of insomnia and it and another study that we looked at uh, examining adult female insomniacs both concluded that it is not specifically the depression and anxiety that are to blame for these higher rates of insomnia. Again, it always goes back to those hormonal factors. So all of this to say The research that we found states that it is not depression and other kinds of psychiatric issues that are causing insomnia. They're sort of they're interrelated, but they aren't codependent. Yeah. One doesn't necessarily have to depend on the other one. Exactly. To happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were just talking about menopause. So if we're if we're look if we're continuing to look at age groups and insomnia, uh, the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry in 2011 looked at about 3,000 each of men and women 65 and older, and they performed a meta-analysis and found that elderly women were at the highest risk of insomnia. So, like Kristen said, it just darn well never gets better. They found that more than 70% of men and women reported at least one symptom of insomnia with difficulty maintaining sleep being the main one. So they looked at things like difficulty falling asleep versus difficulty maintaining sleep. And so they found that women more frequently reported 
two or three insomnia symptoms, whereas men more often reported just one. But some of the protective factors against insomnia that these researchers highlighted for women in this study, at least, uh, included a Mediterranean diet. Mm. So guzzle that olive oil. That's right. Gals, just drink it up. Um, also, caffeine and alcohol. What? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I wondered about that because that is something that is preached against. I know. In every other. Well, I mean, I guess. I guess in moderation. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe these women were really enjoying a Mediterranean diet that included a lot of red wine. Well, and you know what? When I'm postmenopausal, I will, I'm, I will have my coffee and wine if I want it. Yeah. I mean, I will have earned it. But yeah, they also cited hormonal replacement therapy as another protective factor. Which they also noted was a bit of a controversial suggestion because not everybody is a fan of hormone replacement therapy, Mm -hmm. but it makes sense because of, yet again, those hormonal connections to insomnia. Um, Because this was the one thing that I didn't find in our research was like, okay, well, scientists seem to know that our menstrual cycles have a, a large influence on insomnia. So is there any any kind of treatment for mm-hmm. that? Any kind of way to... Nope. No. <laughs> Saw nothing. It was basically just like, well, here here's the information. Uh, take a Lunesta? I don't know. Um, there was also, though, uh, there was another study looking at the intersection of gender and economics... When it comes to sleep, and there was, uh, this is coming out of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2012, and it found a pretty strong correlation between income and quality of sleep. Yeah, the study basically found that as family income increases, trouble sleeping decreases. And that makes sense. I mean, they found that more the more people who were below the poverty line experienced more insomnia than did people who were way above it. Uh, but at every family income level, women were still more likely to have trouble sleeping. But we did glean one geographical outlier when it comes to g- the, the the gender gap in insomnia. And this was coming from a meta-analysis in the journal Sleep in 2006 um, when the and, and the premise for it was researchers being like, OK, all right, we hear all the time about how women are, you know, have a harder time with insomnia. But is that really true? Is this just sort of a methodological trick? Are women just more likely to seek treatment for it? Is it because women are more depressed? Well, first of all, they concluded that, okay, actually, yes. They looked at 27 studies. Yes, women actually do have legitimately a worse time with insomnia, except in Japan. Yeah, this is so interesting. Uh, the study authors think that the lack of gender differences in insomnia, the fact that it's pretty much even Steven, is based on the fact that there's less variation in Japanese society's sociodemographic and psychological characteristics. But see, that's curious to me because when it comes to at least gender roles in Japan from what I've read and also heard from people living in Japan, um, it, it's less progressive. It's more their generals are more, quote unquote, traditional than they would be in the West. Well, I think I mean, in my brain, not having like gone into this very deeply, that kind of actually makes sense, because if people are very set in their roles and they're comfortable with their roles and nobody's trying to, like, you know, cause a revolution or anything 
uh, I don't know, like a feminist revolution or anything, um, maybe people are just sleeping better. If if things are very set in your society, and I'm of course I'm painting this all with a very broad well, brush. Well, Carolyn, I think we've figured it out. <laughs> Down with feminism. Feminism <laughs> is ruining everyone's sleep. <laughs> Please don't write me letters. You know I don't believe that. I'm writing you a letter right now, Carolyn. I'm multitasking. <laughs> God, your cortex is going to need so much rest tonight. I know. But I am curious then if there are any listeners in Japan who can give us some insights. Yeah. Please let us know. Because this was even something that the researchers couldn't explain in the study. They were like, there's something about Japan. And they even broadened it to just East Asia in general. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what it is about sleep patterns there. Because if you look at the history of sleep, like in the West, the way that we sleep has changed since the Industrial Revolution, where we actually used to not just sleep in closer quarters, but we also uh, slept in shifts. For instance, yeah. like Ben Franklin would get up and go on these like night walks in the middle no, of the night. No, you know what Ben Franklin would do? What? He would get up and take a cold air bath. A cold air bath. That's what it was. I.e. sitting naked in his armchair reading. I'm picturing it. I'm picturing it, too. I bet it was refreshing. Well, I don't know. I'd be awfully chilly. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> for, well, we now need to talk about treatments for insomnia. Perhaps a cold air bath will do you. Mm. Um, when it comes to acute insomnia, those brief windows of sleepless nights that might happen, treatment just might not be required. It'll probably yeah. go away on its own. Yeah, exactly. For the chronic insomniacs out there, however, you might want to seek treatment, and that could include treating underlying uh, causes of insomnia. For instance, um, a couple years ago, I was like not sleeping at all. I was really stressed out. And my doctor prescribed me Ambien when really I probably should have been going to a therapist and dealing with my incredible levels of anxiety. Because once you treat that anxiety, that tends to chip away at insomnia. Yeah. And speaking of therapy, there are all sorts of behavioral therapies uh, developed for uh, helping sleep and curing insomnia, such as uh, relaxation exercises, something called sleep restriction therapy, which is on the more extreme end of these behavioral therapies, where if you, say, can't ever fall asleep until like four in the morning, then according to sleep restriction therapy, you would s- make yourself stay awake, not get in bed until four in the morning and make yourself sleep through the night. And so it would basically be like, training your brain to say, oh, well, I got in bed Mm -hmm. and then I fell asleep. Yes, it was four in the morning. And then you gradually like step it back and back and back. I've done that. Well, not four in the morning, not that extreme. But I found myself like I would get really sleepy kind of early in the night at like nine o'clock. But I knew that I was never going to fall asleep and actually go to bed until around midnight. But it it fostered so much anxiety, especially on like a Sunday night, you know, when you know you have to go back to work the next day or whatever. And so one Sunday night, instead of getting into bed early like I had wanted to do and I had tried to do, I just stayed on the couch and read until about, honestly, about 11, 1130 and got in bed then and it was hunky-dory. So that was sort of reverse sleep training. Because you were wanting to go to sleep too early rather than not being able to yeah, sleep. Yeah, like I was sleepy and I wanted to get in bed, but I knew that if I did, based on previous nights of not sleeping, well, I knew that if I did, I would just lie there and sweat. Right. 
just sweat the bed. <laughs> I sweat the bed. Um, but also, like, you know, we, we've mentioned um, sleep apnea a lot in this podcast episode. You might want to look into going to a sleep clinic and getting a CPAP machine. I have a friend who got a CPAP machine and he sleeps like a baby now. My mother was prescribed a CPAP machine, but she what? refuses to use it because she's too proud. What does a CPAP machine look like? It's it's a big old robot looking thing. Like, you don't want it. You don't want to have sleep apnea and you don't want to have to use a CPAP machine, but it can be life changing for people who use it. It, it involves um, putting like a mask over your mouth and nose and... It's pumping air. Someone else can explain this way better than I can, but it's it's uh, not a small machine. Well, something that is small that a lot of people do take in the bedroom is sleeping pills. Sleep the the market for sleeping pills has I don't want to say exploded because that's a sensational term, but it's kind of exploded. Yeah, we are taking more sleeping pills than ever before. Yeah, so if you look back, this is coming from The New Yorker, an article they did on sleeping pills back in 2013, all the way back in 2013. But in 1970, you have Dalmain, which was the first benzodiazepine explicitly approved by the FDA as a sleeping pill. Fast forward all the way to 2006, and prescriptions of sleeping pills hit 49 million. Ambien's manufacturer estimated that that pill in particular had been taken 12 billion times worldwide. Now, the number of pizzas that have been sleep-eaten on Ambien, (laughs) still unknown. And according to data from the CDC, as of 2013, around 4% of Americans were using prescription sleep aids and are used more commonly, surprise, among women and older adults. But the trouble with these sleeping pills is that they might not actually be improving the quality of sleep that you get. There was one study that was cited in the New York Times talking about how, uh, and I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but it was something along the lines of taking a sleeping pill and it helped the people fall asleep Less than 15 minutes faster than Mm -hmm. the people who didn't take that. And then it's the question of, well, what kind of sleep are you actually getting when you pop an Ambien or a Lunesta or something like that? Because you might not be getting as deep of a sleep as you would otherwise. Right. Well, the whole thing with Ambien, and I am someone who takes Ambien now and again, it's not so much that it's knocking you out cold for the whole night, especially if you're taking a really low dose like I do, because well, that's more the placebo effect, let's be honest. But the thing with Ambien and, and other pills like it is that it gives you temporary amnesia. So when you wake up during the middle of the night, let's say you roll over and you can't get back to sleep and you're panicked about it and you wake up the next day and you're like, God, I just know I slept terribly and um, so I'm today's going to be awful with Ambien. You forget that you ever rolled over or you forget that you had that moment of like waking up and looking out the window or something crazy or, you know, getting up and eating a pizza. It just kind of gives you the impression when you wake up the next day that, oh, I slept OK and today's going to be great. So it's sort of a, uh, some mind trickery going on. Total mind trickery. And and in that New Yorker piece, they were talking about drug reps who were working on medication that would be more like keep you more consistently asleep throughout the night. So not just be that sudden sudden onset of sleep and then you sort of toss and turn, you just don't remember it. They're trying to work on pills that actually keep you asleep, but there's all these questions of safety and so we'll see. Well, and then there's a the whole factor of 
lifestyle issues related to how we sleep. I mean, clearly when it comes to you know, sleep on the hormonal level and insomnia and all of that, um, I, I don't think that, you know, don't look at your cell phone an hour before you go to bed is really going to cut it. Mm-hmm. But there are so many different behavioral tips and tricks that are endlessly cycled and recycled on the Internet that I don't think we even need to go through on the podcast. They're so common, such as, you know, limit your screen time, make Mm -hmm. your bedroom cool, only use your bed for sleep or sex, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And there's some good behavioral suggestions that I hadn't really thought about. I mean, this seems like it's common sense now, of course, and it's just exposing yourself to sunlight as soon as you can to sort of tell your body and your brain and all those pesky hormones that it's time to get up. They even suggest uh, getting in an early morning walk with a friend as because you're combining social stuff. So you're using your brain to interact with your friend and then getting sunlight and exercise. And to me, I just um, I'd rather be asleep. <laughs> I socialize with NPR in the morning. I do too. Sometimes I answer them. But the the whole there was a question though posited in the New York Times article that we've been citing throughout the podcast as to whether we are now just fighting our ancestors' way of sleeping, which was, you know, Ben Franklin and his uh cold air baths of sleeping in these four hour blocks and then waking up in the night, doing a few things and going back to sleep. Maybe yeah. we are, you know, forcing ourselves into unnatural sleep patterns. Yeah, I mean it's definitely a cultural, global uh, idea that you get in your PJs and you brush your teeth and you go to sleep for exactly eight hours and then you get up and you go be a very good citizen out in the world and work and and behave yourself and all that good stuff. But yeah, maybe we are just completely fighting nature because it's not as if, you know, these ancestors who were getting up in the middle of the night, they'd sleep for hours, get up, do whatever, go back to sleep. It's not like they had it so so great. You know, we have all these Tempur-Pedic mattresses and these pitch black rooms and don't don't use any blue light. Oh, God. But, I mean, they were sleeping, you know, 35 people to a bed. They had, like, mice and who knows what. Mice and lice. So let's bring back the mice. Let's yes. get the 35 people bed. If, if we can just go back to the Dark Ages. Yeah. But one thing that hasn't changed, though, through all of this is the menstrual cycle. Yeah. It seems like, I, I wonder if no matter what, if, you know, all other factors controlled for, if... It's still like regardless if women would have still have trouble with insomnia more than men because of our periods. Yeah. All those hormones flooding out of the stadium being like, peace out. See you later. See you back when you're you can sleep again. I hope this was illuminating, though, for people. Not not too illuminating. (laughs) We want people to be able to sleep a calmly. I hope this shed a calm, dim light (laughs) for women in particular who do have trouble sleeping and we want to hear from you what what's been your experience with insomnia and have you successfully overcome it and how did you do that to let us know so we can share your insights with everybody else mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at mom stuff podcast or messages on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now Well, I've got a Facebook message here from Caitlin in response to our Explorers series episode on seafaring women. 
And she writes, Ladies, I am a marine scientist and literally whooped for joy when I saw your Seafaring Women podcast title. The timing is especially appropriate as I just returned from a research expedition at sea. I work in a deep sea research lab and part of my job entails going out to sea to collect samples and study sites that can exist thousands of meters deep. When I tell friends and family that I'm heading to sea, the general consensus is that I'm sitting on deck sipping mojitos while waiting my turn to play shuffleboard. Many folks have a hard time understanding why in the world I would even want to be stranded on a ship for multiple weeks at a time. It's true. Even in this day and age, ship life can be challenging. No phone service, intermittent internet, absolutely no Netflix. It's enough to send even the most adventurous person crazy after a while. I, however, embrace the isolation. For one, with no phone to serve as a distraction, people actually converse at meals. I have developed long-lasting friendships with people I have sailed with because we were forced to look at each other in the eye and communicate without the assistance of emails, texts, and Facebook messages. Also, there is something absolutely breathtaking about looking around you in all directions and seeing no indication of human life. Some of the best stargazing I've ever done has been on a ship. And a huge incentive... From the science perspective is that when I'm at sea, I'm privy to something that not many people have the opportunity to see, the deep sea. I've traveled a couple thousand feet deep in a submersible to a site that was little explored, and I can't even begin to describe what it feels like to know that you are seeing something that no one has ever seen before. It's surreal. It sounds surreal. Uh, she goes on to talk about how Rachel Carson and Sylvia Earle, her deepness, have been long-standing heroines of mine. And when I had the opportunity to meet Sylvia Earle, it took me 30 minutes to work up the nerve to talk to her. And she is amazing. As just a few resources, if you're interested, I did outreach for a deep sea research cruise so you guys can read about life at sea at acidhorizon.tumblr.com. And for those of your listeners who are interested in exploring the deep sea from the comfort of their homes, check out nautiluslive.org. They have a live feed running from their ship and viewers can watch and listen to the scientists explore the sea floor. That is so cool, Caitlin. And thank you so much for writing in. And I have a letter here from Whitney, who is a woman after my own heart. She wrote us to share a story about her family history, particularly one woman named Penelope. Um, She says the story is not exactly related to exploring, but to female perseverance in the settlement of North America. She says, I had remembered vague details about Penelope Van Prince Stout as a child, but recently found a family history book that went into much more detail. Around 1643, Penelope and her first husband set sail from Holland for New Amsterdam. Unfortunately, the ship they were on somehow sunk just off the coast of Sandy Hook, but most of the party made it to shore. Once on land, the party was attacked by Native Americans in the area, killing Penelope's husband. Penelope suffered major stomach wounds and hid in the hollow of a tree until another group of Native Americans found her. She lived in the natives' village and was nursed back to health by them. Sometime later, she married Richard Stout, and they moved to New Jersey in 1665. However, hardship was not over for Penelope. She had become close to the native tribe that saved her life, and when they heard of a planned attack on her settlement, they came to warn her. Her husband, Richard, either didn't believe her warnings about an attack or chose to stay and fight. As we can tell from her previous experiences, Penelope was not one to give up. Despite having one bum arm, she took her ten children in a canoe to safety without Richard. When I learned the story of Penelope, I felt honored to be distantly related to her. She was an explorer in her own right, living in a new land at a time when women were not allowed to be strong-willed. 
I sincerely hope I inherited some of those traits along with her good genes as she lived to be 110 years old. Whitney, that is so cool. Thank you so much for sharing your history story. And thanks to everybody who shared their stories with us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blog posts, videos, and podcasts, which include our sources so you can follow along, there's one place to go, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 